privilege for me to be here with you and a pleasure. Um, I'm trying to atone for my sins uh, in a life of dissolution as a trial lawyer. Um, <laughs> and uh, so to, to do that tonight, um, uh, our topic is, is faith irrational? Aquinas on the rationality of belief. And this is a really important topic, also very close to the, the center of the project of the Thomistic Institute, which I help run in Washington, D.C., and, and which um, has uh, now student chapters forming at uh, campuses around the country. Um, because uh, one of the challenges, at least a challenge that I faced as a university student, is that uh, I came to the university, received a very high high level and sophisticated intellectual formation in all kinds of other disciplines, but not in uh, the growth of my understanding of the faith. And that for me, encountering the deep and rich and very powerful intellectual tradition that is part of the Catholic heritage and the heritage of Western civilization, but which is often not present in a robust way on contemporary, especially secular university campuses, encountering that really changed my life because all of a sudden I discovered that some of the things that I believed uh, had very deep roots, were very defensible, and in fact that by going further with my mind into that part of, uh, you might say, my life, uh, it just made my life much, much richer. Made me a much better person and certainly a better believer. Uh, so I believe absolutely in that truth and that's uh, part of what the mission of the Thomistic Institute is, is to, is to um, expose students who are already at a very high intellectual level in other areas to what c can be a very high intellectual level with respect to... Uh, philosophy and theology. So um, the theme for tonight about is faith rational is, is very uh, close to that very project. So how do we understand the act that a Christian makes when she says, I believe, credo? Is faith a leap in the dark? Is it an act of pure obedience? Is it a pure entrusting of yourself to God, no matter what objections the mind might proffer. Some Christians do consider faith to be primarily a kind of inner subjective conviction, a, a complete placing of my trust in God or placing my complete confidence in the Bible or something like this. But there are plenty of people in our culture, maybe you've encountered them here uh, in the university, who might ask of someone who thinks of faith that way, how is that act any different than the act of, say, placing your trust in the Quran or in the Book of Mormon or in any claim to revealed religious tenets whatsoever? I mean, we could actually make this even more problematic. We could try to come up with the most ridiculous or, or patently dangerous sort of religious claim. Think of the kind of radical trust that people have put in some pretty weird 
revelations, like uh, the revelations that David Koresh, I don't know if you remember that name, uh, David Koresh led a kind of cult in Waco, Texas. Um, this was back in the, in the early, uh, well, I guess the late 90s. Or, um, I mean, this is probably ancient history to you, but there was a fellow in 1997 who made the news. His name was Marshall Applewhite. He uh, had a kind of cult around what he claimed was a spacecraft that was following the Hale-Bopp comet, which was going to pass by the Earth in 1997. And he claimed that when the comet passed by the Earth, the Earth was going to be destroyed. (coughs) But if you committed suicide on a given day with $5.75 in your pocket, you could evacuate the Earth and be recycled in the spacecraft. And there were a group of people who believed him and committed suicide. Now, this is crazy. And it is right to reject it. Is believing the Christian faith in the same category as that? Or can we draw distinctions between them? Is what Christians are doing qualitatively different from that? That's actually going to be my claim. But if we want to make that claim, we have to understand what faith really is and why it is reasonable. Believing in a spaceship behind the Hale-Bopp comet is not reasonable. And what those people did, you know, God have mercy on them, was not reasonable. It was a very, very bad idea. Very imprudent, to say the least. Okay, so there are many misconceptions about what it means to make an act of faith that are floating around out there. And to make progress on this subject, we need to make some clarifications. So initially, just to identify what the misconceptions are, or what the the various, what I would say, problematic positions are that I think we should distinguish away. The first is skepticism. That's something we're very familiar with, most of us. Faith, the, the claim would be faith is in itself irrational or contrary to reason or at best irrational. So it cannot be proved. You cannot uh, give verifiable scientific evidence for it and therefore it's irrational. So this position, this skeptical position, posits a kind of opposition between faith and reason. And so a skeptic will say things like, oh, science has disproved religion. Now this, what I think is a mistaken understanding, this has a mirror image or a flip side that is also problematic. It's a kind of corollary to skepticism, which um, from, from a Thomistic perspective is, is in a way just as problematic. We call it fideism. Now fideism accepts the claim that faith and reason are in opposition, but instead of siding with reason, it sides with faith. So it says, okay, yes, you have all this science that claims to disprove the Bible, but actually I believe the Bible and I, dis- I throw the science out the window. Uh, the Bible is more reliable than anything science can demonstrate. Um, so you might associate this view with certain strands of uh, fundamental evangelical Protestantism or something like that. 
But in fact, the roots of this position, uh, now not in, in a kind of extreme form or raw form like, like I've just given it, uh, but the roots of this position actually can be traced back quite deeply into the Protestant Reformation because reformers, Martin Luther is a, is a, is a famous example of this, claimed that uh, because of the fall of human nature, because of uh, the way our nature has been tainted or corrupted by sin, reason really is totally corrupt. And so you can't trust it. It's no longer a reliable guide to truth. So in fact, we should get rid of all of this philosophy or claims that reason can somehow give us a guide to the way life should be lived. And instead, we should just entrust ourselves in a naked way with an act of uh, pure believing, pure trust in God, faith in, in Scripture, and so forth. Okay, a second corollary. So I've given you skepticism and then fideism, which are kind of mirror images. A second corollary of this first error, it goes along with uh, these two views, is that faith is purely subjective. And I might ask you, have you encountered this kind of claim before? I imagine that you have. I think it's a big problem for speaking about faith today, especially in a, in a public way or in a university campus. Um, is faith only true for me? Is it something that is necessarily interior, purely personal, and subjective, and therefore private? Or can there be something there that is, in a way, public and accessible, or uh, objectively true, that we can talk about out in the open, and that we can actually evaluate. We can, we can judge whether it's reasonable or not to believe this. Okay, so those are three positions that are all kind of clustered around a central claim about faith and reason being opposed. But there's another mistake, a kind of second category of mistakes, which the Catholic tradition calls rationalism. Rationalism in its strong form <laughs> Uh, is the sort of inverse um, error. So instead of positing a dichotomy between faith and reason, it sort of merges them together. And it says that faith can not only be defended by rational arguments, defended from attacks from the outside by reason, but that faith itself can be proved by reason. And uh, they, there might be appeals to uh, certain scientific discoveries. There might be appeals to historical investigations, to philosophical arguments. There are some contemporary philosophers, uh, quite well-known ones, who try to make this case that you can basically prove the faith by reason. Now, note that we're not talking here that, about the claim that certain truths of the faith can be proved by reason, like that God exists. Thomas Aquinas certainly thought that. I, I believe that. It's uh, part of the Catholic faith to, to hold that that's the case. Uh, but rationalism goes much further than this. It's not just that some truths are provable by reason, but that faith itself is basically reducible to what reason can prove. In other words, faith is not supernatural. Faith is something that in principle our minds of our own power could arrive at, at what faith knows. 
Now, as surprising as it might be to contemporary skeptics, these very issues were debated and often very hotly debated in the Middle Ages. And so it, you actually can go back to reading some of these medieval authors and you find very sophisticated and in some cases even much more sophisticated discussions of these questions than you will find even in contemporary literature. So, for example, the great Franciscan philosopher and theologian of the 13th century, St. Bonaventure, was himself actually rather skeptical about what reason can accomplish apart from faith. Now, I wouldn't say that he was a fideist, far from it, uh, but you can find things in St. Bonaventure that make it sound like reason uh, was very deeply tainted by the fall, and therefore we can't really know the, uh, what is uh, true. We need, we need the aid of faith. A generation later, in the early 14th century, another famous Franciscan, John Duns Scotus, these names hopefully are, are at least vaguely familiar to you, he argued in the other direction, emphasizing the rationality of faith and saying that basically reason can prove and know all the things that you know by faith. He, he really curtailed the supernatural character of faith. Okay, so in between these two positions, I would situate St. Thomas Aquinas, who is a 13th century Dominican philosopher and theologian. Now, I must confess, I'm a Dominican. Uh, I help run the Thomistic Institute. You just heard that our touchstone is St. Thomas Aquinas, so maybe you're not surprised that I think St. Thomas Aquinas actually has something positive to add to the discussion about this. Um, so I, I don't say this out of party spirit, um, uh, but, but actually because I was, I was convinced even before I was a Dominican that the position of Aquinas was true. So just to speak autobiographically for a moment, um, I was a, practicing as a trial lawyer, realized that I thought God might be calling me to the priesthood. I went and studied philosophy for a year at Catholic University uh, School of Philosophy, which is a very good philosophy program in the history of philosophy. And uh, I didn't really know much about Aquinas at that point. And, uh, but in this program was studying Aquinas and some of these other figures. And initially I was reading Aquinas and I thought, man, this is just so um, overly schematic. Like he's kind of imposing his take, uh, his, his conceptual scheme on the subject that he's talking about. But the longer I studied Aquinas and over the course of a year and actually over the second year that I studied there, I began to realize, you know, I think this is really true. I think he actually is, as one colleague uh, puts it, he's carving reality at the joints. You know, if you've ever tried, tried to carve a turkey uh, and you didn't know where the joints are, you just make a mess. So it's good to know on Thanksgiving Day where the joints of the turkey are so that you can, then you just slice and the, the leg comes right off very nicely. I hope I'm not offending any vegans that are in, in the audience. Okay, so Aquinas has uh, an account of the relation of faith and reason that avoids the, the different problems that you fall into if you go to one extreme or the other, and then in fact came to be regarded as the main line of Catholic, the Catholic theology of faith. And in fact, it's um, almost invisible to us now how distinctive Aquinas' position was, because it's, it's simply become the standard Catholic position. At the First Vatican Council, a lot of what Aquinas held on this point was just enshrined in Catholic dogma, and so probably you've heard echoes of this before. Okay, so my talk will have three main points. So if you're looking at the, at the handout, 
um, you should be able to see the, the, uh, the big parts here. Um, first uh, is clarifying what we're talking about when we discuss belief. Belief understood on a purely natural level, even. We could call it a natural act of belief, and it's reasonable, and we do it all the time. Then the second part of the talk is about why the Christian act of faith, which transcends just a natural belief, is also a reasonable thing to do. And then, so in a way, that's responding to the first problem of skepticism. And then the third part of the talk is exploring how uh, the act of faith is properly supernatural. So that's really responding to that second concern about um, uh, rationalism. Okay, so part one. What kind of act is an act of believing, purely on a, on a human level? Aquinas affirms that when we believe, we really are in a certain way knowing something. But we're knowing it in a peculiar way. We're knowing it even though we don't see it directly. So we accept a truth on the word of another. That's the sort of essence of natural believing. So this means, and very importantly, that faith is primarily something that has to do with the mind. It has to do with knowing something in the mind. Or to use St. Augustine's classic phrase, it involves thinking with assent. Okay, now I'm going to explain uh, what that means, especially that point, assent, uh, in just a minute. But the first consequence of this is that faith is not, according to Aquinas, principally an inner conviction, even less a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's an act of believing of the mind that involves your mind really coming into contact with a truth, coming to know the truth through the word of another. So we can give some examples of natural believing just to illuminate uh, this kind of basic definition. So suppose someone gives me a news article to read, and it, the headline is, um, Elvis is alive and is living in Washington, D.C. And my friend says, do you believe that? What, what is my friend asking me? He's asking me, uh, do I think it's true? Do I think it comports with reality? Do I think it really happened or is really happening? And, you know, if I were a kind of literal-minded philosopher, there are uh, several different answers I could give. I could say, well, I don't know whether it's true, uh, but it seems to me that it probably isn't. So, classically, we would call this doubt. You've got the, a list of these, these four ways uh, that you can react to a proposition like this on the, on the handout. Okay, the second thing I might say is, well, you know, actually, I, I bet that that report is accurate. Uh, although the opposite is not entirely out of the question, but, you know, I, I think Elvis probably is alive. Okay, so that is opinion. I'm offering an opinion. I, I'm not excluding the opposite, but I think it's probable. Or I might say, uh, no, I don't believe it. Uh, now here, actually saying no might have several meanings. I could mean 
Um, I definitely think that it's not true. Uh, it's it's a mistake. It, it might even I might even think it's a it's a lie. Or it might mean I don't believe it because in fact I know it to be true because he's living in my basement. <laughs> so that, I, I use that absurd example just to show that there's there's a difference between believing and knowing. Believing is assenting to a truth that you don't have direct access to. Knowing, properly speaking, is when you actually have direct access uh, through your own experience. Okay, so these are the four classical modes by which your mind can be related to a proposition, according to Aquinas and, and others in this tradition. So you'd find this in the Summa Theologiae, for example. Doubting, supposing or opining, knowing, and believing. All right, so we want to focus in on believing. What is distinctive about believing? Okay, you can, you can actually divide these four modes in, uh, along two different um, categories or ax axes. One is with respect to whether they, they agree with what is said or they disagree. Assent or dissent. Okay, is Elvis alive? Yes or no. Okay, and that assent or dissent can be either absolute or conditional. Like oh, I think he's probably dead, but I'm not sure. Or I know that he's dead. You see the difference? One is unconditional. One is conditioned. Now, when we're talking about belief, we're talking about, uh, well, as, as you'll see from the next example I'm going to use, unconditional assent. So we can illustrate this with another example. Uh, this is actually not far from a real-world example. Suppose that a journalist is taken captive by ISIS and is held as a prisoner in Syria or Iraq and incommunicado for months. His family knows that he's been taken prisoner, but they haven't heard from him. They don't really know whether he's alive or dead. They don't know, what's, you know how he's doing at all. Obviously, that's deeply worrying to them and they care very, very deeply, it affects their life in a profound way to know the answer to that question, how is he doing, is he alive? Okay, suppose that uh, someone comes and knocks on their door one day and says, I also was a journalist taken prisoner by ISIS and I was in the same cell with your son and they just released me and I come to tell you that he is alive and he's doing fine. Okay, now actually, there was a story in the news uh, a couple of years ago about exactly this kind of situation. Now, if you were the parents in that, uh, you know, you're sitting around the dining room table and this guy comes and tells you this, you're, of course, intensely interested in what he's saying. And you probably want to hear some confirmations that what he's saying is true. So you might ask questions that uh, only someone who knew your son would know the answer to. Or he might even volunteer. You know, your son gave me a message for you, and he told me to tell you this or that or this other thing that, that only someone, uh, only he would know about you or about his life or something like that. Okay. If you wanted to be really sure, you might do some checking into the background of this guy who knocked on your door. You might find out that he really was a journalist, he really was held in, in captivity in Iraq, and so forth. 
The problem is you cannot directly verify what he's telling you. So you can establish whether you think he's a credible guy, but you cannot verify the statement that he's, that he's telling you. So suppose he finishes his story, and you're looking across the table at him, and you say, well, what you say has really impressed me, and I'm inclined to think that it's accurate. But you see, I have no way of actually verifying what you've told me. How would he react, do you think? He would probably be angry. And he would probably say, you don't believe me then. And he would be right. He would be right because it's a different thing to say, what you're saying sounds very credible, and I'm inclined to believe it. And saying, I believe it. Or even more, more directly, I believe you when you tell it to me. So what comes to light from this example is that even having a very high probability uh, opinion is not the same as believing. Because believing involves an unconditional assent to the word of another. He comes to you, he tells you it's the truth, and note it's a truth that will change your life if you believe it, and you, and you decide to believe it. Another thing comes to light from this example, and that is this, that believing someone involves a relation to a witness. You have to trust the witness. And when you, when you make this act of trusting the witness, you are now knowing the truth that he knows, but you also have this relationship of trust. So when we talk about faith as involving a kind of entrusting yourself, that's not totally false but it doesn't necessarily get at the essence of what believing is, because believing is actually assenting to what he's saying. Now, it is perfectly reasonable for us as human beings to act this way, to rely on human beings in this way. And in fact, we do this all the time. and We probably could multiply examples of the way that we do this. It's not contrary to reason at all to behave this way. In fact, it would be foolish and unreasonable not to behave this way. So... Uh, we could talk about cities that you haven't been to, Rome, Istanbul. Has anybody been to Istanbul here? Okay, uh, just a few of us in the room. Now, those of you who have been there can testify that it's a real city, that it's a real city in Turkey, etc. The Hagia Sophia is there or whatever. Uh, and the rest of us, it would be ridiculous of us to doubt that that's true. We have that information from a lot of different witnesses and it is normal for us to rely on it. But there's all kinds of other things that are maybe even more important to our lives than the existence of Istanbul that we take on the word of another. Uh, for most of us, who your parents are. Now, in theory, now with genetic testing, you could get a genetic test done, but I, I bet that there are few people in this room who have genetically tested your parents. And, and yet, I bet you have no reason to doubt that they are your parents or your birth date, uh, or any number of things like that, that your mother loves you. I mean, I, I, I think my mother loves me. No, I believe it, actually. And, you know, I could read with skepticism all the acts of generosity and love that she has shown me throughout my life, but that would be, that would be crazy. Uh, so when she says, I love you, I believe it. 
And in a way, that's the only way I can really know what she thinks. It's even true with the scientific method that requires different scientists to run the same experiments. No one scientist can run all the experiments. Uh, and so it's their, their witness about their results in a way that you have to rely on. And you hope that you're sort of crowdsourcing it, you know, uh, and that that will give you some reliability. Okay, these, is, these are all examples from natural believing. These are just human acts of belief. What we really want to talk about, though, is supernatural faith, which is qualitatively different. So it's another category again. Uh, but, but what I hope these examples have shown is that we can give a first answer to skepticism. It's not unreasonable to believe, uh, just on a human level. Is it unreasonable to believe on a supernatural level? Here, uh, Aquinas has something to say about the theological virtue of faith as a, as a supernatural uh, infused virtue. So when Aquinas, even as a young man, he was in the university, he's disputing about uh, questions about science and faith. It's interesting, this was a topic in the medieval university. Not science in quite the way we understand it today, modern experimental science, but they had some of the same challenges and there were um, real uh, skeptics in the medieval university. And so Aquinas has a long treatment about this. And his starting point is that God is the source of both faith and reason. That reason comes to us from God who created the world and made us capable of knowing the world by a kind of intellectual light. And so since God is the source of both faith and reason, we should never be worried that there will be a contradiction between faith and reason. Now that's really important for the university because it means that someone with that conviction can go full throttle into the investigation of the world by reason, that is by science, without any worry that you're going to end up contradicting something that God has revealed by faith. Aquinas thinks that that will not happen if you do your science right. Now, of course, the, the truth is that sometimes we don't do the philosophy right or the science right, and so we have to always be careful to uh, not overclaim our findings. But he does think that reason and faith are deeply compatible. But he also thinks that what the knowledge that faith gives us is higher than what we can know by reason. And it's higher because God is giving us a knowledge of a reality that, is, uh, that transcends just the observable world. We're talking about, say, the, the inner life of God or the nature of God. That is something that we can't directly have access to by our investigation of the world around us. So God reveals these things to us. Now, what makes them believable? Aquinas doesn't think that they are just provable by reason, but he does think they are defensible by reason. That is, he thinks that they are believable. You can show that they are worthy of belief. This is why we would distinguish, say, what the Christian faith teaches from uh, Marshall Applewhite teaching about the spaceship behind the Hale-Bopp comet. That is not believable. That is not worthy of belief. But what the Christian faith proposes, Aquinas claims, is worthy of belief and can be defended 
by reasons. So uh, Aquinas actually gives several overlapping reasons uh, for why faith is believable. To begin with, it depends on certain truths that, that can be proven by reason, Aquinas thinks. Things like that God is, uh, that God is, that he exists, that God is one, and so forth, which Aquinas calls the preambles to faith, the preambula fide. And he thinks that faith presupposes and, and builds on these things. Okay, and then Aquinas points out that it's very hard for us to know even natural realities in a comprehensive way. So imagine all of the investigations just into like the nature of the human mind. It remains very mysterious to us how the human mind works. Uh, even the investigation of animal brains is mysterious and difficult for us. There are all kinds of mysteries in the universe that we have not yet unlocked. Why should we assume that if it's so hard for us to know even these natural realities, that the power of our own minds would give us insight into the deepest truths about even higher realities like God? In fact, it would be reasonable for us to assume that we would have trouble knowing those things and that we would need someone to tell them about them, uh, tell us about them, who knows them directly. That's Aquinas' point about what is happening in faith. God is speaking to us and telling us about things that we could not know ourselves or telling us about himself. And Aquinas thinks it's reasonable to believe God when he speaks in this way because he, he surrounds it with all kinds of confirming signs. Not only does it cohere with what we can prove by philosophy about God, but it's also confirmed by things like, oh, Christ's miracles or the resurrection, or the miracles worked by the apostles, or the, the unity of the teaching of the church over two millennia, and so forth. So that's just a very quick snapshot of why Aquinas thinks that it's believable. And this is a remedy to both skepticism and fideism. Maybe I could say a word about fideism here. Uh, I mean, why would you not want to just take the fideist line? Aquinas thinks that you're you will end up being embarrassed if you try to claim too much for faith. Uh, I mean, in other words, you want to apportion reason its proper place and to recognize that we can know things by, by reason and that it's good for us to know them by reason and that it coheres with what we believe by faith. Okay, now this brings us to the second major element of St. Thomas's teaching on faith. This is point three on the outline, that the virtue of faith is properly supernatural. Now, this is a very important point to underline because it provides the response to the second major error that I was talking about with respect to faith, namely rationalism, or the view that reason alone can prove all of the truths of faith, or that faith can some way be reduced back into reason. That if you take this view, you would say that uh, believing the faith is effectively the same act as believing, um, like believing the, the released POW. It's no different. Now, Aquinas thinks that this is also incorrect. He thinks that believing God involves a different kind of act. It has the same structure. You're still believing another. But it has a supernatural dimension. 
In fact, he would say that there are six different supernatural dimensions of uh, faith. First, Aquinas says, the virtue of faith disposes the human being to an end exceeding the capacity of human nature. What he means by that is, by our human nature, we can know things in this world. But when we are given faith, we can know the hidden things of God. And in fact, we can even become friends with God. That is something higher than a creaturely reality can give to us. He even says that by faith, we come to have a participation in the divine nature. This is from uh, the second letter of Peter, that we are divinized. We become like God by faith. Why? Because we begin to know God in a kind of participation in the way God knows himself. And that is typically what characterizes God. He knows himself and he loves himself. This is the perfection of the image of God in us. When we begin to know God the way he knows himself, and we do that when he reveals himself to us and we believe him. Now, we can, we can see what Aquinas means about how this is a kind of higher act, a supernatural act, when we compare it to uh, like a, a moral virtue. Uh, that could be that could be miraculously given to you, but you also could acquire it. So just pick an, uh, a moral virtue that all of us have some um, knowledge of, probably temperance. I'm not talking about like the temperance movement get, doing away with alcohol. Um, we're Catholics, <laughs> uh, but but rather moderating our use of sensual pleasure. You know, principally. We're talking about taste and touch. So when we're talking about the virtue of temperance, I mean, this is the virtue when I sit down at the, uh, at the dinner table and I see there's the big piece of chocolate cake there. You know, I want the chocolate cake and I want maybe more of the chocolate cake than is good for me or than I should have. And sometimes the chocolate cake wins. <laughs> I, I confess that to you. More often than it should, the chocolate cake wins. Okay, so now it's possible by your own acquisition of moral virtue over a life of virtue that you acquire the virtue of temperance so that you relate properly to food and drink so that you don't overindulge, you eat the right amount. You know, if, when the chocolate cake wins, you, you often regret it later. Uh, you know, so so you, you can learn to moderate how much you eat. So repeated human actions can give you the virtue of temperance. But it's also possible for God to give it to you miraculously. And this does seem to sometimes happen to people. Maybe somebody who's been an inveterate alcoholic who then suddenly receives a a grace to give up drinking. And there are stories that people will tell about this kind of thing. Okay, so that seems to be miraculously infused temperance. Okay, so that's supernatural, right? God is infusing temperance in a miraculous way. You You didn't develop it over time. That kind of infused temperance is supernatural in the way you get it. But it's not supernatural when you exercise it, because then when you exercise it, it's just an act of temperance. Faith, however, is supernatural not only in the way that you get it, God has to speak to you, he has to give you the grace of faith, 
but also because when you believe God, you are doing an act that is really above what human nature is capable of. You are knowing God the way he knows himself. Okay, so a second point immediately flows from this that is a second way faith is properly supernatural. You cannot generate it yourself. God has to give it to you. So if you're going to be divinized, it's not going to come from your own power. And this is a very important principle in the spiritual life. I mean, this is why these, this is not just an abstract academic exercise to investigate things like this. Uh, it has real cash out for our spiritual lives. We need to recognize that we need God if we are going to be saved. He saves us. So that is not something we can generate. So it's also not helpful to talk to our non-Christian friends or non-believing friends and just grab them by the lapels and say, believe, believe, you just got to believe. It's not a human, it's not just a merely human act. It has to be activated by God's grace. And it's, it's hard to believe if you don't have the grace of faith. But the beautiful thing is, when God gives you that grace, it's actually, it's very easy to believe. <coughs> it's a supernatural act. Okay, the third point. Aquinas explains that in faith, the believer does not only receive new data about God. It's not just that you, you have like more data, although you do. But also, you receive a new supernatural light called the light of faith. And that light strengthens the mind. It means that you can see more deeply into the truth that is being revealed to you. This is actually very beautiful. Sometimes God will reveal something uh, to you by, by giving you like a new uh, piece of information. But sometimes he works just by giving you an insight into the things you already know. And when you gain that insight, you're like, oh, I, I see how these are related in a more profound way. And it can have a very deep impact on your life. So the, the light of faith has that effect. It's like being in a room that's just barely illuminated with light, and you're kind of groping, you're going to stumble over the furniture, you're trying to get your key into the keyhole of the door. Has this ever happened to you? You're like in a strange place, it's dark, the... the the lamp doesn't really shine on the keyhole. You cannot get the key in there, or you can't, you can't tell which key is which. It's very frustrating. You add a little light, and immediately you, you have the answer in front of you. Faith can work like this, where you, you get a new way of seeing the world around you, and, and all of a sudden, you understand where I am, and what I'm supposed to do, and how I'm supposed to relate to other people, and how I'm related to God. So it's a deeper penetration into the mystery of reality. Okay, the fourth way of faith is supernatural. It's because its object is God himself. In other words, faith doesn't just give you a list of facts. Faith puts you in a living relationship with God. You come into real contact with him. When you have faith, God is in you. He's acting in you. He's drawing you into himself. He's giving you a share in himself. It's very, very beautiful. That's why we don't want, we should never reduce faith to just what reason can accomplish. Okay, and 
Fifth, a believer to make an act of faith needs to be also moved by God. God activates that act of faith in us. Uh, And then the last point, the sixth point, uh, it is, uh, I think, a very fruitful um, point that when the believer receives faith informed by charity, so when you know God, it properly should blossom forth into loving him. As you know him, you love him because you see how good he is and how much he loves you and what he's done to save you and how much he wants to draw you to himself. And when you know those things, you can't help but love. You love him. And the more you love him, the more you draw close to him, and so the more you know him, and then the more you love him, it's a virtuous cycle upwards. It's very beautiful. So faith saves us precisely because it puts us into relationship with God in a supernatural way. And it means that we don't know him from a distance, but it means that we become his friends. When Aquinas talks about the virtue of charity, so this now is merging into another topic, really, uh, this theological virtue of charity. But when he talks about charity, he, he describes it principally as friendship. And that's kind of staggering. God wants to be your friend. And he wants you to treat him as a friend. He doesn't want you to know him from a distance. He wants you to have a personal relationship with him. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the supernatural act of faith. So the fruit of this act of faith is love and then, of course, joy. Because when you begin to know how good God is, how beautiful he is, uh, you know, the, the, the delights, the joys of being a friend of God, they surpass all of the other joys. So when you begin to know that, then you can, you can start ordering your life in the right way. It becomes relatively easy to order your life in the right way because you want to be closer to God and you want to get rid of the things that keep you away from him. So I hope that it's now clear why for Aquinas, he thinks faith is reasonable, but not just reducible to reason and defensible by by reason. That it is reasonable to believe. You can be a good scientist You can be a good intellectual and a good believer. In fact, you're a better believer when you're using reason rightly. So, thank you very much.